For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high up upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. And I started reading this Psalm of David because actually my story tonight all begins with King David. King David, um, about 3,000 years ago, was this guy that had a total obsession with seeking God's face. He didn't care what he did, what he looked like. All he cared about was being in the presence of God. He had this deep longing to see God in all his glory. And I guess over the past few months, as God has been speaking to me, um, I found myself becoming increasingly frustrated with my current situation. This morning, um, we had a great time of worship together, and there was this real sense that actually there were people in the congregation that had this deep longing to know more of God and to know more of his presence. And Josh described it as this holy dissatisfaction, something that actually is really healthy, but causes us to long for more. And so over the past few months, I've been longing for more in my life. I haven't been satisfied. In fact, I've been deeply dissatisfied with how I see God and how his presence is in my life. And David had mastered this sense of longing. He was totally obsessed. Much to my husband's, uh, well, unfortunately for my husband, I have an obsession at the moment with sofas. I really, really want a new sofa. And the answer, the resounding answer keeps coming back, no. I keep thinking I've got leather, I've got fabric, I've got denim, I've got cream, I've got blue, I've got pink, I've got grey. I don't really care, I just want a new sofa. And I am totally and utterly obsessed to the point where while Josh is at work, me and Ruben, we go off into the town and we look through all the sofa shops and I sit down and, and they give me quotes and I take them back to Josh and I'm like, oh look, this one is really good. We can do it on finance. It won't cost our bank anything. <laughs> and yet the answer is still no. Anyway, that's just a stupid obsession that I have, and if I'm honest, I'm not going to give up just yet. I'm going to keep going. But King David had this obsession to seek God and to know more of God. He didn't care for wealth. He didn't care for status. He didn't care for power. He didn't care about sofas. He just cared about seeking God and seeing him in all his glory. So if you switch off now, if you don't hear any more of what I've got to say tonight, if your mum texts you asking you what you want for dinner and you switch off like I do, then hear this. Let us be obsessed with being in relationship with God. Like King David, let us be obsessed by the coming of his kingdom and let us be obsessed with being in his presence. In 1 Chronicles 13, we meet my guy, Obededom. This is where the story gets going and this is where I get excited. King David is trying to move the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is this huge wooden box that represents the immediate presence of God. Needless to say, it was pretty epic. It was pretty special. It came with the strictest of instructions on how it should be carried, on how it should be moved, who it should be moved by, where it should be put. King David is trying to move this Ark of the Covenant into his city, Jerusalem. He was desperate. 
He had this longing for more of God, but instead of keeping it to himself, he longed for this presence of God to be in his city, Jerusalem. So he said, I know what, I'm going to put it right in the centre. So he, he picks up this Ark of the Covenant and he thinks, okay, right, I'm going to move it. But little did King David know that actually all his best intentions were about to go wrong because he had failed to consult God on this. He'd failed to consult the instructions that God had specifically laid down for him. So everything was about to go wrong. So anyway, David shoved the Ark of the Covenant onto the back of an ox's cart. An ox's cart, I mean, come on. An ox's cart, and they begin their journey down the road. But a little way down the road, the, the cart hits something in the road. And so the Ark just begins to wobble a little bit. There's a guy that stood on the side of the road called Uzzah. Just an ordinary guy, nothing, nothing special about him. Anyway, bless him, bless his heart, he steps in to help steady the Ark of the Covenant. The most single holiest thing on earth, this sacred box that comes with strict instructions, Uzzah steps out and sticks a hand underneath it. And in that moment, he's killed. In that moment, God strikes him down, but in his power, he is struck down and he is killed. At this point, King David is a bit like, oh my goodness, what have I done? Why did I start this mission? And actually, King David now becomes really angry and he becomes really scared. In Exodus, it says, bear with me, then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must never be seen. There is something in the untamable, powerful presence of God that should cause us to fear him. And in that moment, the other steps out and he sticks his hand under the ark to steady it. As silly as he is, as helpful as he thought he was being, there is something in that, there is something in the death of Uzzah that should teach us that the untamable, powerful presence of God is something that we shouldn't take lightly. So David aborts his mission, I think he's had enough by this point, and to be honest I can't blame him. And he asks God, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? So this is where Obedian comes into my story. He goes, the king, he goes and finds the nearest landowner. Okay, just this guy, I picture him to be this little old farmer in the middle of nowhere, just living with his sheep and his family. He goes and he finds him. He knocks on the door, opens the answers, and he says, will you look after the Ark of the Covenant for me? I mean, come on! He's picked this guy, this random guy, to look after the presence of God. Could he not have found someone who was just a little bit more so he goes and he knocks and he asks, I don't know about you, but when, when the postman brings a parcel to my house, or because we live in flats often, he'll drop a parcel off for our neighbours, 
I am the most nosy person on earth. I shake it, hoping it doesn't break. I give it a shake, I sort of smell it a bit. And can I just say, that worked out the other week because our neighbours had ham delivered from Spain. So I gave it a good sniff, and I guess what it was, a jackpot. Anyway, when the postman comes and he delivers a parcel, I'm really nosy, I want to know what's inside it. And over to Eden, I mean, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that he was given a heads up of what this box was. King David just knocks and says, will you look after the Ark of the Covenant for me? And he just says, yeah, why? I mean, would you not ask a few more questions? Like, well, what's in this box? Where's it been? I mean, it might have an animal in it, for goodness sake. It might have a bird in it. <laughs> but on the flip side, if Obadiah had have known what that box truly was, would he have accepted it into his house? Would you have accepted that box into your house, the Ark of the Covenant, if you had truly known what was in it? The Ark of the Covenant stays in Obed-Edom's living room for three months, three whole months before King David decides that it's time to reinstate his mission. King David has had enough, and he says, just, just give the Ark of the Covenant, just give the box to Obed-Edom, and we'll look at this mission again a little while later. And it's in 1 Chronicles that tells us that as the ark dwells in Obed-Edom's house, everything begins to change. Everything is blessed. His family is blessed. You know, if you're a parent, you'll know those days that um, the shopping is done by 8, the slow cooker's on by 8.30, everyone's dressed by 9, the house is cleaned, and you're all out the house by 9.30. Yeah, I don't really have those days very often. Normally I just walk around in my pyjamas in a state of tiredness. But his family functioned well. His family, his relationships, there was good communication. His kids were happy. Everything functioned well. But not only that, his business prospers. 1 Chronicles tells us that Obadiah reaches the pinnacle of his career. He becomes this guy that suddenly was a bit of a nobody. My little farmer guy, by the way, I don't know if he is a farmer, that's just what I've made up in my head. This little guy that isn't really very well known to anyone reaches the pinnacle of his career. He suddenly becomes this man that is blessed beyond, blessed beyond, blessed, all because he has a box in his living room. Now, I can't imagine that Obadiah would have been sat there night after night with his feet up, using it as a coffee table, watching the Olympics with a beer. And I can't honestly think that it would have been this trophy that sat collecting dust either. No, this box, the actual presence of God is in your living room. What do you do? You fall to your knees and you worship and you worship and you worship some more. You sit night after night seeking God's face, saying, God, I want to know you more. I want more of you in my life. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to worship you, and I'm going to worship you some more. That's pretty cool, isn't it? To have the presence of God in your living room that causes you to worship and worship and worship and worship. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days. My heart says of you, Lord, I will seek your face, your face, Lord, I will seek. And that is what Obadiah did. He sought God's face day after day after day. But 
took place in Obededom's house was now this sign to King David. Actually, do you know what? I think he's had enough of this blessing. We need to get this Ark of the Covenant back into the city of Jerusalem. My people need to know God's presence. And so King David knows that his mission the first time was a good thing, but it was done the wrong way. It was just done the wrong way. He just didn't consult God. So this time, he appropriately carries the ark. He goes and collects it from Obedidim's house. You can picture it, can't you? Knock, knock. Oh, King David, you again? I've come to pick up the ark. Oh, really? I was just sort of getting used to this. He comes and he picks up the ark of the covenant and he consults God. And with due reverence, he carries it back into Jerusalem. And it's at this point in the story that Obedidim disappears just for a little while. But then it's this next appearance that really gets me excited, so I hope you're as excited as I am. In 1 Chronicles 15, the name Obedidah pops up three more times. And each time, he is said to have taken on a new job role. He's left his house, and he now is suddenly a gatekeeper, a doorkeeper, a musician. I mean, come on, this guy that had reached the pinnacle of his career, this guy that was prospering, that was being blessed, beyond blessed, beyond blessed, has now become a musician. No offence, Josh. It's a great job, but he's now become a musician, a doorkeeper of all things. And I'll tell you why, this is the exciting bit. He took on those jobs, he left his job. Why? Because he desperately wanted to get back close to the Ark and Covenant because he missed the days when he was close to it in his living room. I don't know about you, but we, um, we went on holiday a couple of months ago and uh, with some friends, and every morning Josh and Ben would turn to each other and they would say, what time is it, mate? And the other one would go, holiday time. Each other somehow permission to crack open the beer, regardless of what time it was, and to open the bar of chocolate. Anyway, we then got home from holiday. This happened day after day after day. What time is it? It's holiday time, and it became a bit of a thing. Anyway, we got home, and on the first day, Josh turned to me and went, Daisy, what time is it? I was like, Well, it's not holiday time, I know that for sure, because I've got pounds of washing to do, and it was miserable. Anyway, Josh cracked open his beer, not in the morning this time. He cracked open his chocolate, and as we sat in our living room with the rain pouring outside, I said to him, Josh, this is awful. This is absolutely awful. I want to go back on holiday. We missed holiday time. We missed the luxury of being able to do exactly what we wanted. This missing the Ark of the Covenant was on a huge scale. It wasn't like missing holiday. It wasn't like missing your best friend when they move away. He was missing the presence of God. I don't know about you, but if that Ark of the Covenant was taken away from me after three months, I would be straight down that job centre asking for any job that was even in a mile of what was going on. And that's what Obedidim did. He wanted to be so close to that temple that he would have done anything to get there. So he took on these new jobs. When we encounter God's presence, suddenly nothing else matters. We are ruined for whatever was going on. Because we have seen God, we have seen his face, and now suddenly 
nothing else matters. Brian Johnson talks about the beauty in carrying God's spirit when he says, once you have seen him, you feel his heart. Once you've seen him, you feel his heart. You know exactly what is going on in God's heart. You feel the same compassion that he has. You feel the same faithfulness that he has. You feel that same goodness that he has. Like Obadidam, we have a choice. Obadidam didn't have the foggiest what he was accepting into his lounge. And I'm not sure I would have accepted it, if I'm honest, without knowing a bit more about it. But he did. But he had a choice. He could have said, actually, do you know what? No thanks. But he said yes. And like Obadidam, tonight, we have a choice. We can say, yes, God, I want more of you. Yes, God, I want more of your spirit. Yes, God, I want to seek your face more. Or we can say, actually, do you know what? This is all just a little bit too super spiritual for me. And do you know what? If you're saying that, if we're saying that, then my response would be, we are 100% missing out. We're 100% missing out on what God has for us. Because it's only in his presence that we are changed. It's only in his presence that things change. So I love it when C.S. Lewis says, in commanding us to glorify him, he is inviting us to enjoy him. He's inviting us to enjoy him. What relationship do you know where you spend time in each other's presence and you don't enjoy each other? Unless you're having the biggest row, I can't imagine that you are not having a good time, that you're not enjoying each other. And it's the same with God. We should be enjoying him. It's exciting. It's unpredictable. When we pursue God, he pursues us. We pray and we worship to encounter God's presence. And then everything flows in and out of that blessing. Everything flows in and out of that worship, that encounter with God. And suddenly, we experience a chain reaction of blessing. We feel his faithfulness. We feel his goodness. We feel his compassion. And only then do we go on to mirror that. Only then do we take on those attributes, those characteristics of God, and we begin to show them. You know, God's presence isn't always dramatic. Um, this week, we had a really sad story in our family. Um, my little nephew, who's two, um, was playing football, and he's broken his fever bone from top to bottom. It's split straight down the middle. And a two-year-old has now got to lie in hospital in traction with his leg in the air for six whole weeks. And then the doctors will decide if they're going to put him in a cast up from here all the way to down to his legs. But that he will be set in a position where he can sit in a wheelchair and not do anything else. And you know, to watch my sister and to watch my nephew go through that situation this week has honestly been one of the most heartbreaking things. And we have prayed, and we have prayed, and we have prayed this week. God, would you heal George? God, would you heal him? Would you take away any pain that he's in? And would you fix that broken bone? And you know, I'm not, I'm not saying to God, God, would you, well, I am saying, God, would you change everything? But actually, God hasn't healed George this week so far. We're still praying, we're still pressing in, we're still hoping for a miracle. But so far, God hasn't changed. But you know what he has done? He has come by his presence into that hospital and he has lifted the mood of my sister. He has lifted the spirits of my nephew where he was crying, take me home, take me home at the beginning. 
He is now finding enjoyment in the presents he's receiving in the playroom. He's enjoying being wheeled into that playroom and Play-Doh shoved in his face. God's presence has changed. It wasn't dramatic. It wasn't the dramatic healing that I was so desperately asking for. And I'm still praying that that will come. But for now, God's presence came and it changed. It changed the atmosphere in that hospital room this week. And for that, I am thankful. When we experience God, we experience a chain reaction of blessing. God's presence isn't always dramatic, but it's finding him in those quiet places, those peaceful moments where he sings over to us, or sorry, when he sings over us and we to him. When God shows up, he reveals his beauty to us. He revealed his beauty to Obed-Edom and everything began to change. He never changes, but everything else does. Isn't that incredible? He never changes, but everything else does. We have a God that we can rely on, that is faithful, that is good. He is a good Father. He never changes, but everything else does. We need to be bold, we need to be putting our trust in Him. If failure won't kill us, but not taking any risks won't get us anywhere. And I don't want to be someone that stood here in a week's time, in a day's time, saying, I am deeply dissatisfied with my current situation. I want to be saying, God, I am satisfied. I still long for more, but I am satisfied with your presence in my life. The Holy Spirit doesn't wait for the atmosphere to change. He doesn't wait for us all to get it right, to be perfect. He doesn't wait for us to sing the right song and suddenly everybody fall to your knees in worship. He doesn't wait for that. He creates the atmosphere. And only then do we fall to our knees in worship. All we have to do is be willing. All we have to do is say, yes, Lord, I will seek you first. Yes, Lord, I will seek your face. You know, it, just, it has to all be about worship. It can't be about anything else. When we see the Lord, it causes us to worship because we've seen him. When we see his face, it causes us to worship him. And then, once we've seen him, we worship some more. It's a chain reaction of blessing. Obedeedon wouldn't have been bored, he wouldn't have been tired. The more he worshipped, the more it would have sparked worship in his life. He would have kept on going, kept on going, falling to his knees, night after night. I can imagine him sitting there in his living room doing the whole kiddie like, just five more minutes. Worship is our purpose. We see it in scripture. It's our purpose to worship God. Our first and foremost thing that we should be doing. And yet, then it should be our privilege. If worship is our purpose, it should be our privilege. Throughout the Bible, we see it time and time again, people encountering God's presence through worship, God speaking in people's languages that they understand, God speaking in, the own, in their own situations, their own circumstances. I love it. I found this that says, when Abraham encountered God, he was called to obedient sacrifice, an act of worship. When Moses led the people out of Israel, it was so they could worship. When Job loses everything, he falls to his knees in worship. When Elijah calls down fire from heaven, it's in the context of worship. 
When Hannah hands her baby over to the Lord, she sings a song of worship. When David dances before the Lord, he worships. They all worship, regardless of their circumstance, regardless of their situation. Hannah's handing over a baby. Job is losing everything. David is flipping dancing like he's never danced before. What a mix of situations, yet they are all worshipping. I'm not saying it's easy. When life throws you a bag of lemons, when life throws you all the storms in one hit, the last thing you want to do is worship. And you know, it's true in my life. When Josh and I, the biggest storm in my life that I can think of, when Josh and I miscarried our first baby, I did not want to worship. That was the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted to get in my bed, snuggle up, and say, do you know what, Lord? No thanks. I don't want anything to do with you. Because you've taken from me, and now I don't want you either. But you know what? As I worshipped, as I began to seek God's face, it took time, but as I began to seek God's face, something changed. Worship began to flow like I'd never known it before. This peace began to pour out of me, so I was able to say, thank you, God, for the good things that are going on in my life. Thank you, God, for what you are doing, not what you've taken away. And I trust that that is still part of your plan. Matt Redman says, when we face up to the glory of God, we find ourselves face down in worship. God's raw, honest, powerful presence changes everything. And I hope that you can see that through the story of Obadiah. I hope that you can see this guy out of nowhere that took on the Ark of the Covenant in his living room for three months received the most enormous blessing. Once we know God's presence personally, only then can we begin to be carriers of his presence under the new Ark of the Covenant that we live under. In transferring the Ark to Jerusalem, David was transforming his city. In transforming that, sorry, in transferring that ark, he was transforming his city. Let us be people that transform our town. Let us not just be a church that's known for his presence, but let us be a community that are known for his presence. Let Guildford be a place that is known for his presence. Um, a band called Leland say, he wants to encounter you with his love so you can become a witness everywhere you go, exclaiming to the world with your life, I've seen him, I've felt him, I've heard his voice, he is alive. David longed to be in the house of the Lord, his presence. Obedudum dropped absolutely everything to seek out that presence once again. We need to be inviting the presence of God in our own homes. Like I said, wouldn't it be incredible to not be just a church that's known for his presence, but to have schools that are known for it, to have local businesses that are literally pouring out God's presence into our community. A friend of ours recently co-wrote a song called Simple Pursuit, which says, God, take us back to the place we began, the simple pursuit of nothing but you. God, take us back to an unswerving faith in the power of your name, a heart beating for your kingdom to reign. Church that is known for your presence again, God, take us back. I don't know if you can remember the first time that you found God's face. I don't know if you can remember the first time that you met Him face to face, that He came to you. But you know what? We need to find that again. We need to find that childlike faith. We need to find that innocence again. 
before we became people that got caught up in everything that you get caught up in when you become a Christian and you've been a Christian for years, we need to go back to that place and say, God, I seek you. God, I'll find you again. And as we pursue him, he will pursue us. God never left us alone. He never designed it that way. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But instead, he breathes his rock into us. He breathes his spirit into us. And then do we have something precious. Then do we have something that we can go out into our community and be an untamable force with his spirit inside of us. As a family, we need to be inviting him. We need to be seeking him. We need to be worshipping him. And we need to be stepping out in his ways. But only the Holy Spirit can create this desire within us. We can't do it. It's nothing that we can do. It's nothing about us. Only when we ask the Holy Spirit does he create this within us. So we need to, it's our job, it's our responsibility to, res to continually, to constantly be saying, Lord, come. Holy Spirit, come. And when we see his face, we fall to our knees and we can't help but worship. Obedida, there was nothing he could have done. The presence of God was there in such a tangible way in his living room that there was nothing else he could have done but fall to his knees and worship. When we fall to our knees and we worship and we glorify God, out of this flows a love for one another where we show mercy, we encourage each other and we live in grace. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, as I was um, preparing this talk, I was trying to think of some stories to tell you that would make you think, yeah, isn't this great? Isn't the presence of God incredible? I want that. And, and I could, I could stand here and tell you stories, but you know what? When I was preparing this talk, in fact, last night, at the very, the 11th hour, I felt God say, yes, those stories are great. Yes, they encourage people. Yes, they bring faith. But actually, let's not get nostalgic. What are the stories of the 28th of August at 6pm? What are the stories of tonight? Those are the stories that we want to be hearing. What are the stories of the 29th of August? What are the stories into September? Let's not keep looking back and saying, didn't God do good things? Let us look forward and be longing and saying, yes God, I'm looking forward to what you've got. Just as I close, I want to read to you Psalm 84. It says, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Blessed, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I would rather be a doorkeeper in your tent than dwell in the, in the uh, courts of the wicked. As far as I can see, there's only one doorkeeper in scripture that is obsessed with the presence of God. How far would we move when we are challenged by his presence? What would it take for him to become our obsession. Amen.